Think he only uses perfectly qualified people? Take a closer look. Moses was not a great speaker. Jonah ran from God. Jacob was a liar. Noah got drunk. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair. Jeremiah was depressed a lot. Solomon was rich in wisdom, but poor in lifestyle. John the Baptist was just plain poor. Timothy was too young. Abraham was too old. Lazarus was dead. Sarah was barren. Naomi was a widow. Gideon and Thomas both doubted, and so did Sarah. Peter lacked self-control. James and John were self-righteous. Paul had a short fuse. Well, so did Peter and Moses. Actually, lots of people did. God's army isn't perfect. It never has been. It's the march of the unqualified. Get in line. Amen. Well, that is the series that we are in. We are in a series called Unqualified, where we have been looking at different men and women of Scripture who by their standards of the day, maybe even today's standards, they seemed totally unqualified to do what God was calling them to do. But God used them anyways. And that's our story as well. So this week, we're going to be looking at a very special woman and I like this story a lot, not just because I think that this, this story is somehow different from many others in the scriptures, it is, but because it could go easily unnoticed. That is, the depths of what is going on here can oftentimes be overlooked. So hopefully we'll take some time today to be able to understand that a little bit further and further our understanding of God's word. Uh, but before we jump into today's message, would you go, go ahead and join me in a word of prayer? Please bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, we thank you for this time where we get to open up your word. We thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet. We thank you that your word teaches us and instructs us in the ways that we should go. That it is good for us, Lord, in so many ways to lean our life, to hang our hats, to trust you at your word, whatever it may say. Father, I do pray that as we talk about these matters, that you would do your work of changing our hearts to more fully be committed with, to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, in today, we will be in the book of John. We'll specifically be in John chapter 4. I don't know about you guys growing up, but for me, one of the things that I wanted to be able to do, especially during physical education time, is to be picked, right? We all have a desire to be picked, to be chosen, and to be placed on the team. So, I remember growing up, 
You know, life was hard. I had to walk 10 miles both ways uphill, right? <laughs> it's a joke. And I would go to gym class, and I remember we would often play kickball, and every now and then we'd even get to play dodgeball. I don't even think they do that anymore, right? <laughs> but I remember specifically, especially during kickball time, you know, I would puff my chest out. I'd make sure people see I could have a good swing of my, my, my leg here, and hopefully I would be picked. There's a desire in each of us, I think, to be picked, right? To not be overlooked, not be forgotten, but to be valued and to be one of the individuals that people want on their team. Today's story is a look at someone who probably would have been on the opposite side of that, who, if anything, would have been overlooked, who nobody really wanted on their team. I think this is a story that we can all relate to, though. Because as much as we desire to be picked, we've all probably experienced in one moment or another a situation in our lives where we felt like we were overlooked and not picked. So we're going to be looking at the story of the woman at the well, specifically the Samaritan woman at the well. But I think it would be important for all of us to understand um, just what is going on here, and this goes back to what I said a little bit earlier about how this story, even though it's powerful, there's so much, so many layers to it that can oftentimes go overlooked without understanding the historical context of what is around this story. So we're going to take a little bit of time, probably a little bit extra time than I normally give for context just so that we can all appreciate this story in its fullness. So just for you guys to know, where, where John 4 comes in Scripture is Jesus is moving toward Galilee. So if you don't know where Galilee is on Israel, I'm going to go ahead and put a map up here for you. So you see he was, he was moving north towards Galilee. And as he was moving north towards Galilee, he goes to a town called Samaria. Now, if you didn't know this, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. At one time, it was one kingdom, but eventually it became divided into two kingdoms. The first kingdom, and I'll put this on the screen for you, was the northern kingdom of Israel. And its capital was Samaria. The other kingdom that it was broken up into was the southern kingdom of Judah. And its capital was Jerusalem. So even though all of these people would have been considered Jewish, there was somehow this north and south divide. And we've seen this happen in, in countries, even our own country. Even in other countries today where one people kind of becomes divided over politics or policy or different things. So the same division happened within Israel's history where there was this northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Now I want to specifically go back to the map for a second here. So the Samaritans occupied this area of Samaria and that's how they got their name. So if you can't see it well... Samaria is just north of Judea. It's by the coast right there, and Adam's trying to help everybody out. Thank you, Adam. And that is the region of Samaria. What's significant about this region is this region, even though it acted as the capital for the northern kingdom, the people 
people of Samaria were different than your average Jewish person. You see, what happened was, is over the course of time, different nations started to conquer Israel. Now, you see this happen repeatedly in, in, in the book of um, Kings in particular, for instance, um, where you see the histories unfolding. And God is not pleased with the nation of Israel, so he uses other nations to be able to help get Israel's attention. So one nation in particular that conquered Israel was the Assyrian people. And it continued and continued after that. But what makes Samaria so interesting and different is the fact that the Samaritan people started to integrate with the foreign nations. Now, this is key here, because in God's law, he wanted the Jewish people to stay pure in their faith. And God believed that if you allowed people with foreign beliefs and foreign religious um, ideologies, for instance, that that would eventually end up spoiling the pot, if you will. It would create a, a, a false religion. And that's exactly what happened. The Samaritan Jewish people started to integrate their faith with foreign faiths. And because of that, they lost, in, in a sense, they lost some of their convictions. And their faith became an added-on faith where they had certain principles and rules that they added on to God's Word. Now, this is a pretty sensitive topic because I'm obviously touching on certain things that we can think about today, right? Things of discrimination and, and things of, of that kind of sort. But to specifically talk about what happened in this time period of when Jesus was around is what ended up happening was is it created contempt towards anybody that was Samaritan. So the southern nation of Israel, the people that were outside of Samaria, developed this hatred, if you will, to anybody that was Samaritan. They despised them. They called them half-breeds. They thought of them in only negative contexts. They thought that they were the worst of the human race. In fact, when they insult Jesus later on in John 8, 48, after Jesus speaks to him about his divinity, the Jews say this to them, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? So they literally think that calling someone a Samaritan, it's, it's, it's almost like a dirty derogatory word for them because they hate this people group so much. And these issues in Samaria, they continued because what ended up happening was is this feud just got worse and worse and worse where, where the Samaritans ended up working against the Jews in very many ways. So like, for instance, one of the things that they would do is they would, they would, hold, uh, they would take asylum for people that, that the Jews were trying to fight against. So this hatred that they developed was very, very strong. But the question that I have for you today 
is, was this hatred wrong? Was what they thought about the Samaritans, was it wrong? Or was it right? That's a difficult question to ask, right? The answer of that question is even harder to understand, I think, in some ways at least. Because we as a people, we have come to believe and understand, not just as Americans, I would say as Christians, that racism, that discrimination, that those things are wrong. And that God has made all humanity in His image, right? So was what was happening right now, was that something that was wrong? Or was it right? You see, I think in some ways, it was 100% right to not be pleased with what happened in Samaria. To not be okay with the people losing their faith, with compromising their moral beliefs, with giving up God's Word, in a sense, and ignoring certain portions of Scripture in adding on other, other portions of Scripture. That was wrong, and everybody that was in Jerusalem or in Judea had the right to be able to criticize that. Because in the same way, we as Christians, we are morally bound to what? To God and His Word. In church, there are things that are in God's Word that we need to hold ourselves to. One of the simple things that we oftentimes think about is, the, is what? The Ten Commandments, right? And there are some who believe that portions of those commandments could be disregarded. And we as a church and as a Christian, we say to ourselves, well, no. We value God's Word, and we don't believe God's Word is changing in the sense that it's not the same that it was yesterday. No, we believe God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and so is His Word. So because of that, we hold ourselves to those convictions, right? So it is totally right in my mind that the Jewish people would have this criticism towards the Samaritans for what they did. But I think where, where they went wrong is, is this idea of self-righteousness. And again, I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of trying to tee things up a little bit for the sermon here and taking a little longer than normal, but it's so important because I think this, this helps expose what so oftentimes happens in our own culture and in our own lives. It's that the gospel message is, is a message of humility and it's a message of grace. But oftentimes what happens to God's people, and I'm speaking to us just as much as I'm speaking to uh, these Jewish people of history, is what oftentimes happens is we forget that. We forget the humility and the grace that God is trying to offer us. Now, my definition of humility that I'll put on the screen here is that, that we recognize that there is nothing that we could do to save ourselves.
And God's grace is, is that we recognize the free gift of God to find forgiveness and restoration in our broken state. These two things are so often forgotten, and it happens in our church, where we forget that before Jesus came into our lives, before we decided to humble ourselves to what Jesus did at the cross, we forget that we were once broken people. That each and every single individual who has ever lived and whoever will live on this earth is in need of a Savior, is in need of someone to offer Him comfort, to offer her restoration, to bring wholeness in their lives. That is a universal now because of sin. So we need this so desperately, but we forget that we need it after we have it. And that's so typical of our human nature, right? Where we forget the good things that God has given us. And we think that somehow we were the ones that were able to earn that. That we were the ones that were able to produce that in our lives. Which is why I think we as Christians need to take a constant posture of humility, of thankfulness. Of saying, Lord, thank you for what I have. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you. And be able to actually count the good gifts and the good things that you have received in your life. You see, where I think the Jewish people went wrong was not in their criticism of what the Samaritans did, but rather in their condemnation of them. You see, there is a difference there between being able to judge something by its fruits and having a condemning spirit towards someone. I remember praying about that as I was in in my teenage years where I was struggling because I realized that God's Word is offensive for some. Because there are things in God's Word that it says, this is right, this is wrong. And that will naturally create an offense for some people. No one likes to be told that they're wrong, right? Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong, so naturally God's Word kind of brings that out. And I remember just praying and just asking the Lord, what do I do? Because I don't want to be somebody who is just judging other people. And I remember praying, and I believe the Lord spoke to me that day and, and, and showed me that there's a difference between judging something by its fruits and condemning something. You see, what the Jewish people were doing to the Samaritans is they were condemning them. They were living in hatred. They despised them. They created a whole culture of discrimination towards them. And that, in my eyes, was totally wrong, and it's sinful. Because what I believe God was calling them to do is not necessarily affirm them in their sin, but rather to be able to look at them and say, brother and sister, what you're doing is wrong. This is the better way. See, that is a better Christian posture to have. To be able to love somebody and have the compassion of being able to come alongside an individual and love them to the cross. 
into the resurrection. But instead, what we lose again is that humility and that grace. You see, if we remember the work that Christ has done in us, then it's so much easier to love our enemies. Right? Because we recognize that in our enemies, in some ways, our enemies were once ourselves. All right, so I've teed it up for you guys. John 4.4. 4. John 4.4 4 in your Bible says, or John 4.3, we'll start there. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Who's, who are they speaking about? They're Jesus. So he's leaving Judea, that's south, and he's traveling north to Galilee. Now we had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So what does this tell us about the person of Christ, that he is willing to go through Samaria? Now, it was normal for Jewish people to actually avoid Samaria to go to Galilee because, again, they hated those people so much that they would go out of their way to just avoid them. So I think this tells us one of two things. One, either Jesus was in a big rush and willing to risk going through Samaria, or two, Jesus was trying to break through some cultural barriers. What do you think? Jesus was trying to break through some culture barriers. That's exactly what he was trying to do. You see, I love this because it means that even though God was categorically opposed to what the Samaritans did, that God was not opposed to the individual, that God loves the individual. You know, one of the common phrases that many of us have probably heard at one time or another in the church is what? Hate the sin. I'll let you finish it. So say that again. Hate the sin. Right. And, you know, that's not a perfect statement. But ultimately, what is that statement trying to say? It's trying to say that we're not against the individual. We're against the sin itself. So Jesus in this moment is literally demonstrating that by willing to risk the reputation and go to a town of Samaria in order to visit this region. And the disciples, they don't understand what is going on. But you see, Jesus' goals was not the same goals that we would expect. And in fact, what I think his goal was, and this is the first point for today, is that Jesus came to set the captives free. Amen? That was Jesus' mission in life, to be able to set the captives free. And in fact, there's a scripture verse from the book of Ephesians that we'll put up on the screen, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, if Adam can get it up on there, that highlights that. It says, but 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And there's other scriptures that speak of this wonderful grace that Jesus came to set the captives free. Church, we need to realize that every single one of us, if you hold to the name of Christ, then it's because you at one time were a slave to sin and that Christ set you free from that. This is grace. This is why God wants us to be people of grace is because he desires us to in many ways embody the same love that he had when he reached out to this world. Many of you know this, that John Wesley is one of my heroes of the faith, so much so that I even named my dog Wesley. But then in the struggle to name the other child that we're having, I thought to myself, man, I... <laughs> Sorry. What I was going to say was, you know, as many of you know, John Wesley is, is, is one of my heroes, and uh, I even named my dog Wesley, but in the struggle to name our next child, I said to myself, man, we used our good name on the dog. <laughs> but John Wesley, when speaking of grace, he says this, Grace is bounty or favor, and we have this on the screen. Grace is bounty or favor, his free, undeserved favor. Man having no claim to the least of his mercies, speaking of God's mercies, it was free grace that formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him a living soul and stamped out on the soul the image of God and put all things under his feet. For there is nothing... We are, or have, or do, which can deserve the least thing at God's hand. I love that. I love that. Because that is His grace. There is nothing that we could have done to deserve it, but He gives it to us freely. Undiscriminatory. He gives it to us. Verse 7 says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. But Jesus goes and He says to her to give Him water. And the Samaritan woman said to Him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
Wow. They're talking about two different drinks here, I think, right? (laughs) But what's amazing about this moment is Jesus breaking every single barrier. You see, not only was there a barrier for the Samaritans as a people group, But there was also a barrier between a man and a woman. It was uncommon for an interaction like this to happen. Now, don't get me wrong. The Jews were incredibly progressive in the sense of fighting for equality between a man and a woman. But it was still uncharacteristic of their culture for this engagement to happen. But it just shows you the person of Jesus, that he is willing to break cultural norms, not not God's law, but cultural norms in order to reach those in need. What should that tell you about your own life? You know, one of the phrases that I like that people often use is, is I will do anything short of sin to be able to reach somebody. And I try to live by that ethic myself. And I think that is a, a, a good thing to think about. What are you willing to do in order to reach the people that God has called you to? In Jesus' time, he was willing to, to break a cultural norm by talking and engaging with this woman as a man in order to reach her. So Jesus and this woman enter into a dialogue and they're talking and Jesus is obviously speaking about this living water that she, he could give her and he's using this opportunity to ask her for a drink as a way to kind of have a foot in the door in the conversation. And they end up going kind of back and forth with all these different types of things and she's kind of avoiding what Jesus is trying to do and confronting her. And I like what Jesus does. See, the minute he offers this water to this woman, the the woman replies in verse 15 and says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, this is one of those layers, church, that I was talking about that gets missed. So what I'm going to share with you right now, I think, is very powerful. You see, you have to read it sometimes a little bit in between the lines to to really get the full power and the full force of Scripture. And why I think this is powerful is because what time of day did I read that it said that Jesus went to this well? Noon? Right. Why is that significant? You see, in a world like today, where we can just open a tap and then water comes out, we fail to realize that in a world where they had to draw from a well, they usually planned out their days in order to be comfortable. So what they would typically do, and it was the most logical thing to do, doesn't take much sense to to think of this, is they would draw water when? Not at the hottest time of the day, they would draw water in the morning. In fact, a lot of times businesses would even close during, during these noon hours because it was so hot outside and they would t- typically reopen once, once the sun started to come down a little bit. So it was normal within their culture to draw water in the morning when it was coolest out to do that physical labor of drawing the water. 
So the fact that she's drawing the water at noontime tells you what? She's trying to hide. She's trying to avoid people because it would have been a common practice for this to be an opportunity for the ladies of the town to be able to talk to one another, to have community with one another, to fellowship with one another. But for whatever reason, she's deciding to dismiss and avoid all of that in order to draw water at the worst time of day because she would rather be hot outside than she would be confronted with other people. Interesting, right? Don't we do that sometimes? Don't we at times hide from people that, that, that we're afraid of interacting with because maybe we think that talking to that individual will, will stir up something in our own lives that we feel uncomfortable with? Be careful, church, if you're hiding from other people. So what does Jesus do? He says this in verse 16. He said, he told her to go call your husband and come back. And her reply is, I have no husband, she replied. And see, Jesus was saying that strategically. And listen to how he responds to her. He says, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Now again, having five husbands even today is kind of crazy, although some people are pushing those boundaries. (laughs) But in a culture that highly valued marriage, this was just out of this world. So could it be that she was hiding, that she was going to draw water at noon, And Jesus knew of this, and he presses that button in her life and confronts her at the very thing that she is trying to avoid. You see, even though Jesus was compassionate and loving enough to go to Samaria, he was still willing to confront what? Their sin. So Jesus presses that button in her life, and she is all of a sudden having to deal with this reality of sin in her life. This leads me to my next point, and I skipped one, and that's okay. Sorry, Adam. You cannot hide from God. Point two is still good, but I didn't get there. (laughs) Point three is, is you cannot hide from God. You might be able to hide from your friends. You might be able to hide from your neighbor. You might be able to hide from me as your pastor. You can maybe put on a good show and make people think and believe that things are right in your life. But just know this, that even if you can fool me or you can fool others, you can't fool God and you can't hide from God. We saw this even in the, the, the beginning of Genesis, right? When Adam and Eve, when they, they sin, what do they do? They hide. But we can never hide from God, church. Now that's both terrifying and that's comforting. Why is that terrifying? It's terrifying because it means that there is nothing that we have done in our lives that God doesn't know about. 
So when we start to think about all the bad things that we've done, we, it, it terrifies me at least because I realize God knows it all. But it's equally comforting because I could also say God knows it all. Which means that He understands your pain. He understands your struggle. He understands your temptations, your failures, your tears. Everything that you have experienced in this world, God understands. God knows. And the comfort should come that if God knows, then we should just go to Him. You know, as a father, you learn a lot of things, right? And I have a lot more that I need to learn. But many of you who are older than me and who have already raised your children or who uh, are better at this than I am, (laughs) you'll remember and you'll know of those times where you know what your child did was wrong. But in your heart, you just want your child to confess. You want your child to be able to come to you and just tell you, Dad, I did this thing, right? And so often, even my son, when he does something a little naughty and tries to hide it, I know he did it. He's not fooling me. But deep down inside, I just want him to confess it to me. And in fact, if he does, I I feel like we can just move on. But so often, we try to hide things from our, our Father, We try to hide things from specifically our Heavenly Father. And He already knows. And if you as a parent can already understand the the value in what I just explained of wanting your children to be able to confess to you their shortcomings, then how much more do you think our Heavenly Father is willing to do that for us? How much more do you think God is willing to hear your struggles and to hear your pains? Church, know this well. God already knows everything going on in your life. Don't make it a mystery in the sense that you think that by not talking to Him, He's going to somehow not be aware. He is. Go to God and let your heart be known to Him. Eventually, what ends up happening in verse 21, Jesus confronts her as she tries to, in some ways, avoid her issue of having multiple men in her life. And Jesus says, Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. If you have your Bibles, that is, that is worth underlining. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind, and I love that. This is Jesus teaching you something here. 
of what God the Father values. That they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So what kind of person does God value? He values someone who is able to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is telling her here is it doesn't matter if I'm a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan. It doesn't matter if your people believe that this is the most sacred mountain. And when our people are arguing that, no, this is the most sacred matter. What truly matters is that you worship your God with a genuine heart, with a truthful heart. The woman, after hearing this, says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Which, from an apologetics point, people often say that Jesus never declared his divinity. Well, did they ever read this verse? Because it seems pretty clear that Jesus is declaring his divinity right here. (laughs) Jesus broke the barriers for this woman. And she would eventually go off into her town and bring back a collective of people and literally bring these people to Jesus and, 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 and she would tell them, come listen to this man who, is, who has literally told me everything or who has said everything about my life. And I love that because it shows that there was something happening in her heart. But what makes this story really powerful for me is that Jesus was willing to go into this town to break the barriers between Jew and Samaria. But it also shows that every single individual is important to God. You see, when you think about political campaigning, when you think about trying to um, advance yourself in your career, what do you typically think of? Or what strategy do most people try to do? They try to go to the places and the people that are most important, right? The, the phrase that might be used is getting good face time with the who, with the boss. Because you believe that that in some ways will advance you to where you want to go in your career. But what I love here is that even though this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the most important person to have ever walked the earth, that he literally takes the time to walk into a city that all other people in his group rejected. And not only that, to speak to a woman that was hurting, hiding, and in pain. If Jesus is willing to journey that way for this woman, how much more will Jesus journey that way for you? My encouragement for you today is to realize that Jesus breaks through barriers. And that he could break through barriers in your life. But you need to allow him to do that. So when we pray right now, 
I want us to take some time to self-identify in our minds what our barriers are. What are the things that you feel like you've kept from God, that you've hidden from God? I just want you to just let that be known to Him in this moment. Because I think if you do that, you're not going to be confronted with condemnation, but instead, you'll be confronted with what? Grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can come to you. So now in this moment of silence, Lord, I'm going to ask, Father, that we can just come to you right now with the things that we have maybe been hiding. And we just pray, Lord, that we can just start breaking these barriers right now that keep us from you. Because it's not the other way around. You want to invade every single portion of our lives. I know it. So church, we're going to take a moment of silence and I just ask that you would take this time now to do what we discussed. Lord, we thank you because I, I, I know, Lord, that as each one of us takes the time to allow our hidden areas of our lives to be exposed to you, that you can work in that moment now. So I pray and I trust that you will continue to do that, not just in this moment, but as we continue in our day. I also ask, Lord, that you would help each of us not do that in this, and not, not just show, share with our lives with you in these single moments, but that we can do this daily. Because Lord, we know that you are a good Father, and we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.